Welcome to the Innovation Engine Podcast. Since 2014, we've been bringing you conversations with some of the world's leading authorities on innovation. Topics we cover include technology, culture, leadership, and more. Coming to you from Three Pillar Global Studio in Fairfax, Virginia, here's your host, Will Sherlin. Welcome back to the Innovation Engine Podcast. On this episode, we'll be looking at the concept of innovation wars. What corporate strategy lessons can be borrowed from the battlefield and applied in the boardroom? Why trust is an essential element within any innovation team? And why anyone in the product space should get a little more familiar with the concept of lead users? Here with us today to talk about all that and more is Scott E. Bales. Scott is the author of the forthcoming book, Innovation Wars. He's a global leader in the arena he calls the digital shift encompassing innovation, culture, design, and mobility in a world gone digital. Over the course of his career, Scott has built companies on four continents in industries including insurance, payments, financial inclusion, retail, and consumer products. In addition to innovation wars, Scott is the author of Mobile Ready, Connecting with the Untethered Customer. Welcome to the podcast, Scott. Hey, uh, Will. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So let's start this episode off talking about your book, which I mentioned in the intro. It has a provocative and catchy title, Innovation Wars, Driving Successful Corporate Innovation Programs. What do driving successful innovation programs and combat on the battlefield have in common? So it's interesting. There's two stories that open the book. One is actually comes from the caveman era as they were seeking to adapt the impending ice age and their need to adapt and basically go out and battle the big bad creatures of the world in order to survive the impending cold. And so the actual opening introduction from a guy called Hannes van Rensburg, who was a founder I work with, fantastic story in terms of the basics of that. But the more important case study actually came from the US military in the early 2000s when they faced their first phase guerrilla warfare in Afghanistan and you know the hills and mountains around there, they saw a very different enemy and were forced to rethink their organizational design, how they approach the market, you know, how they execute on decisions. And a lot of those decisions are very similar challenges you see in a lot of corporates today. Most of the organizations you see in the modern era today in the Fortune 500 were designed and structured during the growth of the industrial era. So they were built for a early 1900th period. Those structures and power mechanisms have remained in place for over 100 years. And those power mechanisms are now the Achilles heel of most Fortune 500 companies as they face disruptive and more agile threats. So it's, and then, and within the story, we really play on the, I kind of, I really love the, the Sun Tzu's The Art of War as a kind of um, using warfare as an analogy. And so I try to, where possible, pull in roles like snipers and counterintelligence and so forth as ways of explaining certain roles or certain approaches within the competitive landscape that is innovation. And any good army is made up of various team members from generals on down to GIs. Who are the major players that you think must make up any successful innovation brigade? The key thing here is is two parts. There is one which we call the execution of today. And that's basically like what you have today, how do you either make it run that more efficiently or improve on it? And so this is where the formal structures become very key, particularly the, the flow of information to decision makers. Now, it doesn't matter if you have 
one level in your hierarchy or 10, the speed and clarity at which information passes through that decision tree is vitally important to the maintaining of the basically the current mothership of an organization. But if you start looking at more disruptive threats, you're looking at autonomous cells. So Amazon, they call this single-threaded leadership or two-pizza teams where you have small teams that own an outcome autonomously. So they're allowed to pursue it with absolute focus until some point in time that idea is killed or gains more momentum seeking more investment. So two very different parties in the same organization that are structurally based on a lot of things coming out of warfare. So in the case of that two pizza team, that's very similar to a lot of the analysis, the um, self-empowered platoons that uh, the patrol, some of the most treacherous parts of the world. And let me go back to your to your first answer and ask a little bit more about uh, about the sniper and counterintelligence, I think, were the two you mentioned from the art of war that you kind of apply in the book. What are those concepts? Yeah, so a sniper is someone that is basically got your back when you're trying something brave or bold. So if you're, so I, I use the analogy that if you're in special forces or the, ranger or the rangers or something, and you're going in deep cover behind enemy lines, you want someone that basically has your back when you're going into territory unknown. So particularly this is either in the innovation space, either an advisor or a mentor that has existing political clout that is not seen to be basically being too rash or risky, but will step in to have your back in moments where they see th- impending threats. So that may be either a political threat internally or an organizational threat, a budgetary threat, investment threat, a number of threats that might come about. And these Snipers essentially can see a threat ahead of you actually hitting it in your experimentation. Counterintelligence is one of those interesting things now is that we live in a world where you have to understand that both product and brand and their relationship with markets have changed. In the modern world, no longer can organizations tell the world that they are awesome and that everyone will believe them. If you're a brand and you tell the world that you have the sexiest, coolest new product and that you're amazingly awesome, All that is is a benchmark for the market to scrutinize. So it doesn't matter if you're Apple, Google, or some guy on Kickstarter. If you make a claim, there is an ability now to actually call that out. And so one of the things you have right now is you have two things. One is two-way communications on branding and value. But secondly is around understanding what's coming back out of that in terms of speculation. Is there slander? Is there negative NPS or positive NPS and how do you turn those things into intelligence for driving the dialogue within decision making but also within strategic approaches to a market. So this is where measuring basically the response either in if you're Microsoft what is Google talking about you if you're Google what is Microsoft saying about you in the market of having that kind of intelligence on what the conversation is about your brand is extremely important to your own positioning. So culture and context are two things you write about as being vitally important for companies to get right if they want innovation to flourish. Why are those two intangibles so important and what do you mean when you talk about context? Culture in particular, context is the first one. So context is how they are structured. So decision matrix, how decisions work within the organization, how intelligence flows. Financially, how is it structured in terms of P&Ls and incentive contracts? You know, is a business owner contracted to a, a three-year contract that is self-fulfilling for the current incumbent way of doing things, or they are, are they incentivized to grow through transformation? And that's the context piece, even down to office design, for instance. And so I spent a lot of my time working on 
how do you build an office that is going to naturally facilitate innovation? The next part around culture is the key things missing in the culture of the Fortune 500 company are things like curiosity. So re-asking questions that may have been uh, embedded for some period of time or an acceptance of failure as a series of lessons. You know, the ability to, you know, to work autonomously, to experiments and ideas, all those things become the foundations of a new cultural framework, which is very natural for what I call the digital native companies, the Googles, Facebooks, Apples of the world. But it's a cultural change program if you're a bank or an insurance company. And culture is basically the foundations that must be in place before you start executing with different skills, which is the capability side. So if you're going to try and really adapt things like agile, design thinking, lean startup methods, innovation accounting, the culture must be embedded first as a common vernacular, a common way of operating before you'll start using these skills. Otherwise, you'll just won't get the most out of most of many of those new skills. And you mentioned trust in that answer. Brian Kaufman refers to it as the first law of the innovation culture. What makes trust such a valuable commodity for companies looking to bolster their innovation capacity? And trust is an important one because if you think about this, is the ability for innovation to succeed or be blocked is based on how much confidence do you have in an idea or the people that are pursuing that idea. And that particularly when in organizations that are you know, as complex as they are today, trust is the key element there. Do I trust that Will is going to execute this idea successfully? It's kind of one of the warts in the book. So there's a number of warts that come out in innovation. There is a number of people that can talk innovation, but have very little skill at building it. So most people can talk their way through design thinking or lean startup. But when it comes to whether they can actually do it, it makes people either skeptical or overly confident. Basically, trust has been broken a number of times, as you see, particularly, and this is a challenge for a lot of the big consulting houses, as they try to have their own innovation consultancy divisions, do they have the right people to build trust with a customer to have them challenge some you know, core parts of their business? Because if you're going to challenge the way a business has been operating for 30 years, you're going to come up against some challenges, some roadblocks, some rules, some protocol that have been embedded for a very long, long period of time. And navigating around those and basically pushing through the barriers is going to require a huge amount of trust in the individuals. There's a great blog post on your website at scottebales.com that's titled Assumptions are the Mother of All F-Ups. Can you touch a little bit on what you mean by that and what you suggest as maybe more appropriate alternatives to steer decision-making than assumptions? No worries. The quote is borrowed from an old Steven Seagal movie, for those that can remember. I can't even remember the name of the title of the movie off the head right now. But it's basically a method of realizing that most ideas or new new products fail because there is a underlying assumption that has never been either clarified or verified. So if you look at this particularly in the Lean Startup Methods, its core methodology is around validating or invalidating assumptions within an idea. So that might be assumptions on does a, does a problem even exist before you attempt to solve it? Which particular customer segment even has this problem to know that we we're targeting the right people? And so those assumptions are the core experimentation foundations of the Lean Startup Method, which has now been translated into corporate innovation and commonly called the the Lean Enterprise. And one of the concepts you write about on your website is that of, quote unquote, lead users. What are lead users and why are they so important for people looking to build successful new products? 
the guys, but it is that I sort of put in a very high regard. It's a guy called Jeffrey Moore. Jeffrey wrote the book Crossing the Chasm, and he talks about the innovation adoption curve. And in that is a segmentation of the market through the life cycle of a product adoption. So innovators are the people that create innovative products, but lead users are typically what we call early adopters. And psychologically, they are very different to the majority of the market. They only represent about 13.5% of an overall service of population. But these are people that are not only actively aware they have a problem to solve, but are trying to solve it already today. So lead users are a far easier audience to sell or convince them to try something new because they're already actively seeking a solution. The two examples I always refer to is, let's say you want to create a Get Fit app for people with diabetes, or you want to have a quit smoking app for people who want to quit smoking. In the psychological model of uh, likelihood or propensity to adopt, there is three different segments. You have, first of all, what we call the early adopter, who is aware that smoking is a problem and is actively trying to quit. Okay, so they want to go into a quick campaign, they might have tried nicotine patches, they've tried multiple things. Convincing them to try something else is not very hard. The next is the early majority. And so these people are aware they have a problem, but have yet to try and solve it. So these are people that are aware, okay, smoking's maybe not great for me, but haven't attempted to quit yet. And then there is what we call the late majority. These people are not even aware that their situation is a problem. So these are people that are smoking and are probably in denial that they should ever even consider smoking, despite those very ugly warnings on the bond packages, is they're going to be the ones that um, need to be convinced they have a problem before you can even convince them to attempt to solve that problem for them. And so by going to the early adopters, you have not only what we call low-hanging fruit, but you have an audience that will proactively contribute to solving their own problems. In one of your earlier answers, you mentioned some of the warts that come along with innovation. It's not all candy and roses. What are some of the common warts that teams should look out for or be prepared for? So the most common wart is what we have what's called a solution bias. And that is particularly common in new tech where some new tech comes out and everyone rushes to try and find a need for it. NFC was a big, in particularly in the payment space, was a huge one of this for me where you had a technology that had amazing potential, but no real applied use case. I champion the idea of co-creating innovation with the market, as opposed to building in isolation and imposing it on the market. There's a great story here of the Porsche Cayenne versus the Chevy, I think it's the Chevy Bolt. Both went through very different product creation periods in 2011 with very different outcomes. And so one was a bias towards new technologies like carbon fibers and materials and so forth, which is the Ford example where Porsche co-created their new product, the Cayenne, with their market. And so what we call solution bias is probably the bigger, biggest and ugliest wart in the innovation space today. And let me ask you a little bit about your own endeavors in the product development space, because you've had quite a few. Can you share with listeners what some of your forays into the startup world have been and how they've panned out? My favorite and most sentimental still to date was I had a very lucky opportunity back in uh, 2008 I was thrown into Cambodia by an Australian bank to come up with a way to bank emerging markets. We hadn't, didn't even have any when you went to work, let alone live. We just had a bucket of money to try and solve this problem. And through the work of an amazing team there, I learned a ton around how you can co-create a product using you know, technology at your disposal. The business today is known as Wing Money. The bank that sent me there was ANZ Bank out of Australia. And Wing Money is basically a basic level bank account 
that is sold and distributed through sort of feature level, um, the feature phones, Nokia, sort of the old basic Nokias. And the process we went through that was extremely important in helping me understand how to co-create a product because we had a series of hypotheses around how we would build the product, what it would look like, how it would be priced. But it wasn't until we actually tried to sort of field test it with the garment factories in Cambodia that we started realizing that we were a part of a larger ecosystem within the life of a garment factory worker. They had things they would regularly spend their money on. They would have, and they would send money home to their family. And so we had to adapt the product to ensure that we appealed to the psychological and utility needs of that user. And so, yeah, it, it took some time, but the process, we work with um, some amazing guys where we built what we now call the money ecosystem, which was a very primitive version of what you would say today around design thinking and user-centered design to reverse engineer the product. From that, that sort of snowballed for me into the work I did with Fundamo, which is a South African mobile payments company, which we sold to Visa. And then working again with the building of the original spend, save and live product that is in Move-in, the digital bank in North America. After that, I spent a lot of time working predominantly with a corporate audience and working side by side with entrepreneurs in multiple continents, including Africa, Asia, Australia, and Latin America, reapplying those same methodologies of, of innovation and co-creation to build more successful products. And let me ask you about Startup Connect. It's a new video series that you started for the Innovation Labs Asia site. What's the idea with Startup Connect and what are examples of the kinds of guests who have been on to this point? I'm really fortunate in my job. So I travel the world. My second home is an airplane and either doing keynote addresses or startup mentor programs, corporate innovation programs right across the world. And I meet a ton of really amazing people. And I realized that in time, you know, it's actually quite selfish of me to keep a lot of these conversations to myself. So as I travel the world, um, Startup Connect is basically just my way of trying to capture, and I'm, I'm probably doing a terrible job of it, and I would love help from anyone that has a, a good job of how to do this in a more impactful way. Basically, it's a, a way of helping me share the stories of people that are trying things around the world. So every time I travel, I'll make an effort to try and connect with someone and have a chat, just like you and I are doing right here, is me just you know sharing a story. Yeah, definitely. If my ears are correct, Scott, I believe you may be a new father. Is that accurate? Yeah, I've not new. I, it's, I've been at it for a while. Six, four, and two, three boys. Okay, um, very nice. Convincing any of them to ever be quiet is very hard. It's late evening here in Singapore. It's bedtime, so convincing them to go to bed when they know daddy's behind a closed door is quite challenging. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm sure you and the BBC dad have a few things in common. Yeah, you got to kid yourself well. I do not. Not yet. But uh, I'm recently married. So uh, keep your eyes peeled sometime soon, perhaps. <laughs> Lots to look forward to. Yeah, definitely. So let me wrap things up a little bit talking about the book. You're in the process of writing it, or at least when we last talked, you were in the process of writing it. You've taken a bit of a non-traditional route to get it published. What's that process been like? And when might listeners be able to get their hands on a finished copy? The process you're referring to is uh, being a natural innovator at heart. I didn't, let's say I wasn't exactly satisfied with the traditional way of bringing a book to market. Author gives up far too much of the control in the production process. So I partnered with a startup called Publishizer to crowdfund the book. And so basically pre-orders allowed me to build essentially what in the traditional publishing world would be an advance for me to pay for the resources required to bring this book to market. 
The book's basically 95% complete. We're in the final edits now. We're hoping to see it on shelves. I would hope in the third quarter of this year. Like there's some very big interviews I want to do, and they're super secret, so I can't tell you who they are, but they will be end up forming very core parts of the business. I mean, it's no huge secret. The book does focus on a word called war, and I'm trying to get a very, very senior military person to go on record for the book. That's a challenging part. Yeah, definitely. Well, good luck with that and good luck with getting it wrapped up. We'll look forward to seeing it hit the shelves in uh, the latter part of this year. Scott, thanks so much for joining us today to talk about innovation wars and how we can all prepare for life on the corporate battlefield. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It was our pleasure. If you'd like to learn more about Scott Bales, you can follow him on Twitter at at Scott E. Bales. That's B-A-L-E-S. You can also visit his websites at scottebales.com and innovationlabs.asia to learn more about Scott and his work and to read his latest writing. I want to close out this episode with one request for listeners. If you have a minute, drop me a line at will.sherlin at 3pillarglobal, that's 3pillar with the number 3, and let me know what you do. I'm curious to find out more about the audience so that we can bring you better and more relevant episodes in the future. Again, will.sherlin at 3pillarglobal.com. No landing page, no form, just drop me a line, let me know who you are, and if you have any guest ideas, I'd love to hear those too. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time. The Innovation Engine podcast is produced by Three Pillar Global, a product lifecycle management and software development company based in Fairfax, Virginia. Go to our website at www.3pillarglobal.com to find out more about our services. You can subscribe to the Innovation Engine through the iOS podcast app, SoundCloud, and Stitcher Radio, and you can also ensure that you never miss an episode by going to 3pillarglobal.com slash podcast. There you can sign up to receive fresh new episodes of the Innovation Engine in your inbox each time one comes out. You can also download our very own iOS app designed and developed in-house here at 3Pillar by searching for the Innovation Engine in the iTunes App Store. If you like what you hear on the Innovation Engine and you live in the world of product and software development, you may like our sister podcast, Take 3, you can find Take 3 at soundcloud.com slash take3pillar with the number 3 or on iOS devices by searching for Take and the number 3 in the podcast app. On each episode, my partner in crime Julia Slattery talks with two three-pillar team members to get quick takes on the trends, technologies, and tools that are changing the way software gets made and business gets done. <laughs>